Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your holy word, and we thank you for the story of your gospel, which you teach us in scripture. And we thank you, Lord, that it is the story with a capital F that is true, that makes all other stories um, that have any inkling of truth, they, they derive their truth from the one truth of your great love for us, of your incarnation, of your death upon the cross, of your resurrection, and our redemption through faith in you. And so we look to you in hope. We ask you now, be present palpably in our midst as we study the stories of fairy tales, and especially how beauty relates to fairy tales. Lord, would you show us your great beauty? And we ask this for your glory's sake and in your name. Amen. So we talked last week, hello, sorry. We talked last week about fairy tales, and we talked specifically what are fairy tales, because you could have, the genre is big enough that you have a lot of things that fall into the genre. Well, there's one I've read a lot, and one, you know, one person that seemed to have distilled it down was able to distinguish between fairy tales and myths. But fairy tales, they all seem to have a level, some, some aspect of fantasy to them. There's some kind of magic, there's a dragon, there's something that comes in from outside of the real world as we know it, and yet the heroes and the main characters in fairy tales are ordinary human beings. Do you remember the Greek myths? A myth will have a god or a divine person who's got supernatural abilities as the main character, or a legend that's pseudo-historical or almost historical like Beowulf will have a human hero that has supernatural qualities as the protagonist. Well, fairy tales, they are ordinary human beings um, that ha need help from outside of themselves for their plot lines to be resolved, okay? So fairy tales are narratives that have ordinary protagonists that deal with everyday life issues, but involve some level of fantasy and magic. G.K. Chesterton said that sanity lies in fairy tales. He had a great imagination and talked a lot about playfulness and how God himself is playful in creating um, the universe, in the way he creates the universe, speaking it into existence. And you can see that even just in the myriad of different birds that exist in the world or the myriad of different plants. Why did God create so many different genus and species? Why did he want to have so much variety and so much beauty in creation? Simply because it delights him. He says, why not? Let's have 31 billion flavors. Why do we need just 31 when we can have it all? Let's have all the different colors um, in all the different birds and all the different flowers and all the um, different plants that are even possible. So that playfulness and that creativity is within our own creator and we as human beings are made in his image. And so the impulse to create whether it's to paint a painting like we saw um, given out at the nine o'clock um, service to our beloved Hausman family as they were departing, that beautiful painting or something else that's beautiful, whether it's a song or a story, those beautiful works of art are in fact the impulse to make them is an impulse that comes from the fact that we ourselves are created in God's image. And so J.R.R. Tolkien, when he was talking about fairy tales, he writes this whole big long essay on fairy stories. And in this essay, one of the things he says is that fantasy remains a human right. We make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made, and not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. 
We create stories. We create beauty. We create art because we are created, and we are created in the image of the Creator, God Himself, who delights in our creation, especially as our creation points to His creation and the truth of His story with a capital S. So why read fairy stories as adults? We often get them, they often are relegated to children, and um, you might think it's very childish of me to have three classes on fairy tales. It is, but that's because I'm a child at heart. But um, Tolkien, again, said that the best kind of fairy stories are the ones that adults enjoy reading as well. He said if a fairy story is, a, is as a kind, as worth reading at all, it is worthy to be written for and read by adults. He laments the fact that all too often fairy tales are relegated to children's literature like the same shabby furniture or old-fashioned things that were left up in the nursery in bygone days. You know, 100 years ago, people would um, move all the furniture that they no longer wanted downstairs for people to publicly see, for the adults to enjoy, and they'd move them up to the nursery um, where the children would play with them or use them. And with this idea that it didn't matter what happened to them, they could get destroyed if necessary. Um, And he says, no, no, fairy tales need to be the very best of stories. And when they're actually good for children, they're also good enough to captivate the imaginations of adults. He then also talks about some of the things that are characteristic of fairy tales that make them something that older people need as well. He says that older people need recovery, escape, and consolation almost more than children do before children's worlds, sorry, are dashed by some of the hardships of adulthood and life in general. And so he advocates that we read them as adults and also as children. Um, So then why do we read fairy tales as a Christian? Why bother? Well, again, this longing for beauty and truth that is at the depths of our beings was set there by God. And this is now George MacDonald speaking from his book, Lilith, which is definitely fantasy, maybe not quite fairy tale. He says that imagination creates um, that which we hope for, because that which we hope for is only accessible by faith through the imagination. We who obey the shadow of a truth that has been revealed to us in this life will later see the truth plainly. And so um, these stories hint at the truth and um, bring us to hope for the truth, especially in that we hope for help from outside of ourselves. And that element of fantasy is visible in almost every single fairy tale. Almost every single um, ordinary character in the fairy tale story gets help from outside of themselves, whether it's Jack who has magic beans that create the beanstalk that goes up into the sky, or um, Snow White who lays totally dead, uh, seemingly dead, and is immediately revived by true love's kiss from Prince Charming. Or um, I'm sure you can think of another one. The same is true also of Aurora when you look at Sleeping Beauty. She also is completely dead to the world and is totally revived from outside of herself. Um, All of the fairy tales in general have that aspect of a gift being given to the protagonist, to the main character, that enables them um, to realize the end, the happy ending that comes. Um, And so then in that aspect of the happy ending, and again, we're going to talk about this more next week when we talk about joyfully ever after, there is this gleam of joy throughout fairy tales, especially in the way they end, that points to the truth about the story of human beings. Um, That the story, the human story, our story, 
as we know it through scripture, as told by God, the author with a capital A, ends well. It's not a tragedy. Sometimes it might feel like a tragedy, but it's going to end well. It's going to get better. Um, things will end joyfully ever after, as we'll talk about next week. Okay, I'm going to stop. Any questions about all of that, about fairy tales and generable? Uh, generable? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some new words. Tolkien made some new words. We'll talk about them next week, but that's maybe not a good one. Any questions about them in general, about fairy tales? Why do we bother reading? Why would we ever want to read them as adults? Um, okay. Tolkien himself said that he wasn't actually captured by fairy tales. He didn't like them as a child. He liked them when he started to study language um, as, as he was in college. And if you've ever read any of Tolkien's long novels, fairy, they're fairy tales. But in his stories in The Lord of the Rings and also in The Hobbit, he enters into fairy tale through language. He was a philologist, um, and it's the language that draws him into the fairy tale stories. Okay. Last week, we talked about mercy for Maleficence. We talked about real evil in the world and how fairy tales point to real evil in the world in the way that there is real evil in fairy tales. Just think about the story of Hansel and Gretel. Anybody remember the story of Hansel and Gretel? Hansel and Gretel have a stepmother who has married their father, and the stepmother is not quite as wicked as the stepmother in Cinderella, for example, but she's pretty bad. Maybe she's more wicked. I don't know. Who's, who's, how are we going to compare evil here? <laughs> well, she, there's a famine in the land, and she, she convinces her husband that there isn't enough food for all four of the family. And so she convinces her husband to leave his children behind in the forest. And the first time, the children are able to make their way back. The second time, they use breadcrumbs, and the birds eat the breadcrumbs. And there they are, lost in the forest, without um, anywhere to go. And that's when they get stuck. If you remember, there's a wicked witch and her gingerbread house. And they are so drawn to evil, showing that evil sometimes masquerades as something so wonderful that we can't help ourselves, right? that masquerading temptation, the wicked witch there in that gingerbread house. Everybody remembers what happens, right? Um, she's luring in children because of the candy all over her house, all of the sweet things, and she lures children into her house, horror of horrors, because she wants to fatten them up and eat them, right? So if you ever wondered if there was evil in the world, sometimes people think fairy tales, there's too much evil for children to be able to read them. But actually, the extreme evil that you see in fairy tales, cannibalism, what's worse than that? I mean, we could maybe think of some, I don't know. But um, that extreme evil, we try to anesthetize it for children, and some of the modern fairy tales will do that, which is kind of laughable. They actually teach that right from wrong. What is evil? You can recognize it in fairy tales because it's so extreme. And by reading fairy tales, um, younger people, children and then young adults, learn to distinguish what evil is like without even having to rationally think about it. There's this instinctual understanding that there is evil in the world. So there's this um, reality of evil in the world. And then fairy tales give a, a sense of justice. Because of the ending, the way things are tied together, evil is always judged. There is always victory over evil through a turning of the tables. Um, and yet, even so, for those who have done evil, there is hope. And we see this in some of the way um, fairy tales, postmodern fairy tales, are told. 
and you've seen it over and over again. We talked about it last week in Maleficent. Um, at the end of the movie Maleficent, we see that Maleficent is not all bad, that she does evil because evil's been done to her, and it's there in her, and yet she also is not completely uh, a villain. It's not totally black and white. Um, at the end of Maleficent, the narrator, who's um, the Princess Aurora, says, in the end, my kingdom was united not by a hero or a villain, as legend had predicted, but by one who was both hero and villain, and her name was Maleficent. There's a, um, there's a show on ABC, we talked about it last week, Once Upon a Time, and in the latest season of Once Upon a Time, they question who are the heroes and who are the villains. How easy is it to be one or the other? And yet it's not as black and white as that. We must come of age and see that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is perfectly good like the heroes in fairy tales seem to be. There is no perfectly good person other than the person of Jesus Christ. And so these modern fairy tales, the way fairy tales have been spun and retold, shows, in fact, a compassion for maleficence, a compassion for wrongdoers. Um, since such were some of you, as St. Paul says in Romans 2, there's redemption for maleficence, mercy extended. And you see that, I'm not going to reveal the ending of the movie Maleficent, but you see that in that movie as she repents. And there's a very clear moment of repentance and redemption. So there's hope for maleficence and um we talked about that last week. This week we're talking about kind of a similar idea of hope for um, those who are not all right and the reason why some are not all right and others are. We're going to look at it in terms of beauty and in light of beauty as put forward in fairy tales in general, but specifically we have to start somewhere. And so we have to start with where beauty in fairy tales has ended up, which is right here. I was up in the nursery last week during VBS um, visiting with someone, and as I was standing there, a, a little tiny person, I think she was about three years old, she was adorable. She walked in with her mother, and she said hello to the adult helper, and the adult helper turned to me and winked and said, hello, Jasmine. She, she wanted to be called Jasmine. <laughs> She wanted to be, you know, she I fully identified with one of those Disney princesses, and she refused to be called by her actual name. She was, <laughs> it was adorable. But if you know any three-year-old little girl, that's a par for the course. That is, that's normal. And maybe there's, um, maybe the younger ones of you ha recall having identified with one Disney princess or another over another. I certainly, when I was in fourth grade, we did a class play, and I remember, um, I, I don't know if I was praying. It's so embarrassing what you pray about when you're nine. But I think I was hoping and longing that we would do Rapunzel. And here's why. When I was nine years old, I had the hair down to here, and it was blonde. And I said, well, if we do Rapunzel, I'll be the star. <laughs> you can imagine my nine-year-old rage when we ended up doing Snow White instead. There was no way I was going to get to be in that fourth grade play as a, as a main character. It was just funny. It's funny how little girls, come on in, identify with the different uh, Disney princesses. So there is this um, way in which young girls look up to the beauty that they see here, the beauty put forward in fairy tales, especially as told by Disney, and say, 
I want to be like that. Or they walk right into it and say, I am like that. Much like the three-year-old little girl, one of my own nieces, for a while we noticed that she, she would always walk around like this. <laughs> she literally did. She was, she's a good little actor, but she was playing the role of a Disney princess. She was practicing how do Disney princesses hold their hands. Um, so I'm going to turn off the lights, and we're going to see a um, little clip from Disney World. I, believe it or not, I've never been to Disney World. Can you imagine? I've had a deprived childhood, adulthood. I don't know. I've never been. Maybe I'll have to go now that I live closer to Disney World, but I'll have to borrow from the children for it. <laughs> So this is from, I found this on YouTube. It's a, um, the coronation of Princess Merida at Disney World, but this way it's real and live. Today, a new princess entered the royal court. She joins those who have come before her, princesses who by virtue of their own qualities inspire us, embolden us, and challenge us to be our very best. with each one of the princesses. If all of that is as easy to obtain as princess hands, we're in good shape, aren't we? <laughs> well, there is this sense in which beauty, this physical perfection, right, especially for women, um, becomes related to goodness, moral perfection. And of course, we understand goodness in its um, in the way scripture tell, tells it to us as righteousness, that obedience to the law. 
Um, so if for women specifically, beauty becomes equated with goodness, physical perfection, with moral perfection, what we find is that beauty and the law of beauty, for women in particular, um, becomes diabolical. It kills us. And any of us grown women can tell the younger women, it will kill us. Um, there is a, a great book called, um, by Gerhard Forde, Where God Meets Man. And in it, he says that law, anything that we could characterize as law, is that which accuses and terrifies. And in a real sense, anything that does this functions as law. It is the voice which for the sinner never ends. And the voice condemns in our inability to attain the law. And so for setting up, when we set up this ideal of beauty and moral perfection for little girls, what we're doing is we're setting up a law for them, which might be, it might be a good thing to be, it is a good thing to be beautiful and kind and good and courageous and smart and inspirational. I love that Belle was smart and inspirational. Um, but all of those things are wonderful things. But if we believe that we can achieve them by modifying our behavior, then we're going to end up devastated. And that's what we see um, throughout our lives. For women especially, I would say, there's, um, excuse me, I'm going to show you this. One thing, the Disney princess model, I would say, um, becomes so ingrained in our society that we end up living it out as adults. I would say women do, some women do. And um, I'm going to show you, there's this, um, a couple years ago, there was a wedding that got a lot of public attention and it was because the bride was so enamored of Disney that she wanted to have a Disney-themed wedding. I do think that a lot of the wedding dresses on the market, they're princess dresses, aren't they? I've been a maid of honor many times and been in the bridal salon with the bride, and she stops and pauses on the dress that makes her hands go like this. And she says, I'm a princess. I'm pretty as a princess. Well, here, this, this bride really did want to be Princess Ariel for her wedding. Um, so these are some of the pictures from her wedding. You can see them. Here she is. Um, I can't tell which one's the maid of honor, if it's Aurora or Mulan. <laughs> <laughs> but um, certainly, whoever is playing uh, Snow White has apples in her bouquet. And um, the father of the bride is walking the bride down the aisle there as Princess Trident, right? If you can see that. And then the um, bridesmaids, of course, their dresses were all designed and made specially for the occasion. Can you name them all? Let's see, Aurora, Mulan, is that Belle? Mm -hmm. I don't know, I don't know. That's definitely Snow White. Wait, who's the blue one? Who's that? You think that's Jasmine? No, Beer Midriff, I couldn't tell. Yeah. And then Cinderella, right? So um, there's a sense in which this becomes this ideal, whether we want to or not, whether I, the ideal is the beauty of Disney princesses, or a different kind of ideal, especially for women, I would say, beauty becomes a law. How often are we shamed by advertisements suggesting that if we just do this one thing, if we just modify our behavior in this one way, if we just buy this one product, then suddenly our beauty will be regained. Usually now we're trying to regain the beauty of our youth. There is um, a song that's sung by the singer Beyonce on her 2013 album. And forgive me for quoting her, but here I go. It's, it's just good. And this is one of the non-explicit songs. I don't advocate the explicit songs. 
Mama said, you're a pretty girl. What's in your head, it doesn't matter. Brush your hair, fix your teeth. What you wear is all that matters. Just another stage, pageant the pain away. This time I'm going to take the crown without falling down, down, down. Pretty hurts, we shine the light on whatever's worst. Perfection is a disease of a nation. Pretty hurts, pretty hurts. She says it again, pretty hurts. We shine the light on whatever's worst. We try to fix something, but you can't fix what you can't see. It's the soul that needs the surgery. Pretty good, right? She gets right at the heart of the problem in our society today, that we're constantly trying to regain this outward perfection. Um, and we're never going to get there. And we spend time and money trying to get there when, in fact, the problem is a soul problem. And it's a soul problem for men and women alike. And it's the problem of sin. And no amount of surgery, no amount of plucking your eyebrows, no amount of hair dyeing or whatever it takes can fix that problem. Um, but there is hope for us. And thank goodness there is hope for us. And we see that hope coming through in fairy tales, um, shining through. There's a little gleam of that hope in fairy tales. So I'm going to show you again. I showed you a clip from Cinderella last week, but I'm going to show you another clip and I'm going to tell you the ending as if you didn't already know. It's the same as the ending of the old fairy tale, so don't worry about it. Don't worry that I'm um, revealing something you didn't already know. She gets the prince. That's the ending.
grace given to her in the beauty that's given to her from outside of herself, there is already an inner beauty as well, in part through the suffering that she's undergone. But what you see at the end of the film, we all know the story, right? She is locked up in the tower. She can't try on the slipper. Somehow she's singing, and they hear her, and they come back. They know there's another young woman in the house. She tries on the slipper, and it fits. Um, but she has to come down the stairs from the attic, and there's a moment where she has to show herself to Prince Charming as she is, as Cinderella, as this lowly girl who sleeps in the, in the fireplace, who is a servant girl. And what was so amazing to me about this particular film is that she doesn't try to justify herself. She doesn't say, oh, they've been so mean to me. I'm really high born, but now look at me. Suddenly I'm down on my luck, and here I am. She just stands there as she is, and he asks her who she is, and she says, I'm Cinderella, the horrible nickname given to her by her horrible stepsisters. She is so humble. She is so willing to be unbeautiful before him, and she's, there's this moment she's terrified that he won't see her as she is, that he won't receive her as his love because of her um, lack of beauty in the world's eyes. And there, this is true of us spiritually and morally, that in our weakness, we cannot attain to the law morally. If the law is that moral perfection, that beauty parallels analogously as a physical perfection, we, all of us, men and women alike, um, cannot attain to it by our own behavior modification. And yet, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is why for me, growing up as a young girl, the, the fairy tale that I loved the most was actually Beauty and the Beast. Not because I wanted to be Beauty, the Disney princess who was smart and insightful or smart and inspirational. No, it was because I felt like I was the Beast. And when you look at little girls playing at Disney princesses, it's not because they believe they've attained the beauty or whatever else they attribute to that princess. It's because they want to be like that, and they know they're not like that. And so for me, that word, you know how in, um, whenever you see a British movie or you hear Brits talking, you see it especially in some of the British children's films, they use that word beastly when someone's behaving badly. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're so beastly. Why are you so beastly today? And um, in our human frailty, in our human sin, we are beastly. And yet God loves us while we are still beastly. And that was what was so beautiful for me as a young girl about Beauty and the Beast. And again, watching it again, I was sort of mortified by the tone of her voice and her long Like just everything about it kind of rubs against me the wrong way. But as a child and in reading the story, there was one of my favorite authors wrote a novel based on Beauty and the Beast that actually she wrote for adults, but her publishers said this is a children's book, relegating that furniture, the shabby furniture, to the upstairs room for the children, but it was such a good novel. It was such a good understanding of the truth that beauty loves the beast and transforms the beast that it changed, it changed me in reading it, and I was able to see this movie through the eyes of that book. So watch what happened. 
She says to him, while he's still a beast. And that's exactly what, and that's what breaks the spell um, that was on him. And that's exactly what God does to us in Jesus Christ. That um, for us sinners, um, Jesus Christ would deign even to die the death on a cross. That no one in our natural human humanness, none of us, would ever consider dying for a good man, as St. Paul says. Um, but maybe even for a good man. And yet God, in his mercy, dies for us as sinners. God dies for us when we're being beastly. And um, so beauty shows her love for the beast in that while he was still a beast, she returns for him, she loves him, and her love transforms him, doesn't it? Her love transforms him back into his human form. And that's what God's love does for us, too. Miraculously, the grace extended to us in Jesus, in Jesus transforms us into being people who are beautiful from outside of ourselves, where that beauty is imputed to us, given to us, um, not our deserving, not because we have done all these things and checked the box and have made ourselves beautiful on our own. But um, as St. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us, to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of re reconciliation. Beauty loves the beast. God loves us, even when we're beastly. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your perfection, your perfect um, righteousness, that you are beautiful beyond belief, and that somehow you have given up yourself for us, that you have loved us to the point of death on a cross, that we would be transformed by your love. And so we ask, Lord, um, do that. Love us into being the people that you've created us to be. We know that you will. We know that that is your work and that your work of our salvation is complete. And so we thank you and praise you for that. And we ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>